Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. I would just remind you as you are turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 that, that this really is the closest to glory that we will get on this side of the grave. As God's people gather on God's day and open God's Word, we get a taste, we get an appetizer of heaven and of glory as our God deigns to meet with us through the proclamation of His Word. So it is with joy that I would ask you to stand, and with joy and anticipation to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to be continuing our look through Paul's letter to the churches at Galatia, and we're going to focus our attention this morning, uh, beginning in Galatians 2 verse 11 through verse 16. So this is the word of the Lord. Uh, May God give us ears to hear. Galatians 2.11 But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw... Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please take your seats. You, you never thought you'd see it, but there it was unfolding right in front of you. It's always sad when a fight breaks out during the church softball game, but this one was especially miserable. And it was especially miserable because the two men with puffed up chests and those red veins popping out of their necks, uh, these two men were titans in the church. There at home plate, kicking dirt on one another, were Peter and Paul. They were face to face, and it was awkward, to say the least. Now, of course, that's not true, at least not the the softball game part, but I would suspect it is easy enough for you to imagine, especially if you have ever been part of a church softball league. You might be better off joining the pagans. There's probably less cussing and less fighting, but I digress. The point I'm making, and the one that is more than apparent in the passage before us this morning, is that Peter and Paul had no small altercation. The question then is why? Why is there so much heat and not so much light? Why is Paul worked up? And the answer is simply this, church. The gospel was on the line. 
Let's be very clear. The gospel of Christ actually crucified for sinners. And that on account of Christ and Christ alone, that you and I, guilty sinners in and of ourselves, that we are made right in God's sight. And that our being right in God's sight, our justification, it is ours by grace alone through faith alone. That message, that good news... It was being maligned. And so Paul was hot. Now to be clear, as I said, this whole thing didn't actually take place at a church softball game. Where it did take place was something much closer to what you and I do together once a month as a congregation. What we call Feasting and Fellowship Sunday. Let me explain. Sharing a meal in the ancient world was a really big deal. It it was actually something of a cultural event. And this was especially true for those who were Jews. For the Jew, sharing a meal with somebody, it was almost a sacred act. We don't think this way. But to sit down and to sit across from somebody and to eat and drink with that person, it meant something. It communicated something. It meant we are one. We are good. You and I, we are on the same team. We we are breaking bread together. Ironically enough, I should point out, this is one of the reasons that got Jesus in so much trouble with the religious leaders of his day. You remember, he would sit down and he would eat and drink with who? Tax collectors and sinners. And that would infuriate the religious leaders. Not just because they didn't get the invite, but because by Jesus sitting down with these people, he was in some sense aligning himself with them. And whenever you do that, religious people get really torqued off. So with this Feasting and Fellowship Sunday in your mind, enter Peter. From what we can tell from the passage in front of us, Peter was eating like a pig, and he was eating pig. Verse 12 tells us, For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. And in the middle of verse 14 adds, that this is Paul now rebuking Peter, If you, Peter, if you though a Jew, live like a Gentile, So it's not just that that Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but he was living like a Gentile. He was one with them. For all intents and purposes, he was one of them, right? He sat at their table. He partook of their food. He looked like a Gentile, especially as he ordered that BLT with extra B. This was what Peter was up to. That is, until an entourage from Jerusalem showed up. Verse 12 tells us that certain men came from James, and James here being the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, one of the pillars of the church that we discovered last week in Galatians 2.9. So this group of Jewish believers have shown up to this, mind you, this predominantly Gentile church, And it seems that they showed up to sort of take inventory, to take a pulse, to to check on the health of this church. Before we impugn motives, especially uh, motives of James, 
it's probably best to see that, there, that there's, there's nothing nefarious going on here. They have shown up to encourage the church. Well, as it turns out, this entourage that has come from Jerusalem, they were likely converted Pharisees. The problem is, they hadn't checked all their baggage yet. And upon their arrival, as Peter sees them coming from a distance, he panics. Two phrases in verse 12 tip us off. On the one hand, when they came, he, and that is Peter, he drew back and separated himself. Drew back and separated. You see, one day, Peter is living like a Gentile. He's fellowshipping with them. He's eating their food. He's enjoying the joy and the freedom that is his in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And then, all of a sudden, he retreats. And, and that's a good word for this whole thing because that's one of the ways that that verb there in verse 12 is translated. That verb that the ESV translates as drew back, it was used to describe a military withdrawal. It was described to use retreat. So Peter retreats. He draws back. He puts distance between him and them. Those are his actions. The next phrase reveals his attitude. We are told that he is doing all of this. He is, he is retreating. He's separating. He's stiff-arming. Why? Verse 12, he did so fearing the circumcision party. I want you to notice, what drove Peter was not courage or conviction. Neither was it principle or prudence. What was driving him was fear. No longer gripped by the reality of what Christ had done for him and how the gospel had set him free. Now what is Peter gripped by? What will they say? What will they think about me? What will the whispers be up at Jerusalem when they get word? What will they think about me? Am I going to lose any of my clout with the Christians up in Jerusalem? And if all that wasn't bad enough, Peter's attitude and actions, they were contagious, weren't they? Verse 13 describes how this disease spread. We are told, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, that is, along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, whether Peter understood this or not, he was a bigwig. And so people would look up to him, and people would emulate him. And so here is a group of people, and they are seeing that, that Peter is sort of one foot in, one foot out. He, he's trying to play for both teams, and so they join in on this charade. Just as a rock tossed into a calm pond would cause ripples. Well, so this whole incident has caused ripples in the church. And before we move on, I would like to just pause here for a moment and draw your attention to three very important lessons that we can learn from this episode thus far. Three critical truths that I think, at least if I'm honest with myself, 
so often escape us. Number one, it is possible to have right belief and wrong behavior. It is possible, Christian, to believe all the right things and to live your life contrary to them. This is certainly the case with Peter, is it not? There's not a hint in our passage. There's nothing that would lead us to believe that all of a sudden Peter's no longer passing his theological exam course. Peter's not the one in Sunday school giving all the wrong answers. Peter's no longer able to faithfully articulate the gospel. No. The point is, on paper, Peter is flawless. He knows all the right answers. He knows what boxes to check. In practice, though, he has failed miserably. Let this be a caution, then, to us, redeeming grace. Hear me well. It is possible to know all the right answers, to subscribe to all the right Reformed confessions, to have all the chapters and verses underlined and memorized, but it is altogether possible for you to do all of that and still live in ways that are contrary to the truth of the Gospel. We must, as Paul warned the the Philippian church, we must let our manner of life be worthy of the Gospel. He would instruct the Ephesian church along similar lines. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is not enough, brothers and sisters, to simply believe the right things. God calls us to live in light of those right things. Number two, here's the second critical truth that so often escapes us. Fear of man is fatal. Fear of man is utterly fatal. This is why Peter was knocked off of his horse. He was worried. He was fearful of what others would think about him. Let me just say this, Christian. I assure you that fear of man is the fastest way to stunt your growth in grace and to handicap yourself spiritually. Think about it this way with me. The gospel announces that in Christ, we are free. We are free because Christ has lived for us and died for us. In the gospel, Christ is all our righteousness and all our hope. Because of Christ, we have a new identity. We've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. As we will learn in Galatians 3 in coming weeks, we are sons of God and heirs with God. We are actually sinners who are saved by grace. We are fit for heaven. We are bound for glory. We have an inheritance that Christ has won for us. Now, If all of that is true, and it is, then why on earth do we care what that coworker in the cubicle next to us thinks about whether or not we are Christians? You see, like Peter, our fear of man tends to arise from a heart that is not truly trusting God. 
We think to ourselves, well, what will my spouse think? Or how will my kids react? Or what will my neighbor say? What will my boss do if I, if you, if we were to truly live as Christians and fear God more than we fear man? Which means, brothers and sisters, that fear is the spoiled fruit born on the withering tree of doubting God's promises. That, at the nub, when you peel back all the layers of the onion, when you actually unroot the weed, fear of man comes from the fact that we do not trust God. Fear of man is the result of you and I not fearing God. But with the lens of the gospel, we see that we need not fear For Christ has acted on our behalf. He has reconciled us to God. He has given us His Spirit. And as Christians, we are called to walk in that reality, to walk in that new life that Christ has won for us. Let me mention number three here very quickly. This episode teaches us that our sin impacts others. Let me say that again. Our sin impacts others. We can so quickly deceive ourselves, can we not, into thinking that, well, my sin only affects me. Well, well, my sin sort of exists in a vacuum of sorts. But that would be like pouring chemical waste into a river and thinking that it will only affect that one particular part of the river. Christian, be convinced of this. Your sin brings collateral damage. There will be shrapnel, and that shrapnel will wound your husband or your wife. It will wound your kids, your parents, your church, your community, even Christ himself. Peter's hypocrisy affected those in Antioch, even Barnabas. Likewise, your sin and my sin, it reaches far and wide. Speaking of sin reaching far and wide, back to Peter though. Back to Feasting and Fellowship Sunday. Back to the fact that Paul has had enough. He could see how Peter's actions were smearing the gospel. And so what does Paul do? Well, there's no point in sugarcoating it. Paul gets in Peter's face and he does so in front of everybody. Verse 11 records the incident. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face. And the middle of verse 14 lets us know that this opposition wasn't done in private, but public. Middle of verse 14. I said to Cephas before them all. So here's the question. Why would Paul get so amped up? Why would he get so amped up that he would deal with this whole thing out in the open? Well, two answers must be given. First, public sin requires public confrontation. Public sin requires public confrontation. Peter has, for all intents and purposes, just lobbed a grenade into the sanctuary of the church, and Paul is forced to jump on it. People are going to take notice. People are going to see what is going on. 
Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot sin publicly without others taking notice. So Paul is basically saying here, if you're going to sin openly, then I am going to deal with you openly. A principle, mind you, that we see throughout the Scriptures, one that we as a congregation should adopt. The second answer is this, and and we've already uh, mentioned this very quickly in passing, but I really want to hammer on it. Peter's actions here were scandalizing people. As Paul says in verse 14, speaking to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, here's the question, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, don't you see that that by your behavior you are sowing seeds of doubt and discouragement? And not only that, but, but by what you were doing, you were actually neutering the gospel. How, how is it that, that you can be a Jew and yet live like a Gentile, recognizing that the gospel has made you free, but then at the same time you force these Gentiles to, as it were, become Jews as if Christ didn't set them free? You see the hypocrisy? You can't revel in the gospel and and boast in the cross and stake your life and eternity upon Christ dying for you. You can't live your life by grace alone, through faith alone, and then at the same time, Peter, put a heavy yoke of burden upon this group of people over here. That attitude and those actions, they are, verse 14, not in step with the truth of the gospel. And we should just pause and say that, that of all people, Peter should have known better. And I say that because not too long before this, an event occurred in Peter's life, one that you'd think would have completely reoriented not just his thinking, but also his living. You can read about that event in Acts chapter 10 on your own this afternoon. For now, let me just give you the cliff notes. Acts chapter 10 records for us an event wherein Peter received a vision from God, one that at least initially seemed quite strange. Peter saw this sheet descending from heaven right before him, and on that sheet were a whole host of unclean animals. And as these unclean animals came right within Peter's face, Peter hears an an, a, a voice say to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not sure what to make of this whole thing. Suddenly there is a knock at the door. And Peter has visitors. Turns out it is a group of Gentiles who are asking Peter to accompany them back to a man named Cornelius' house who himself was a Gentile. While initially reluctant, the spirit eventually overcame and Peter acquiesced. Upon arriving, what did Peter find but a packed house, a house full of Gentiles, those who were unclean? It was then that Peter began to put the puzzle pieces together. Just as the animals from his vision were unclean, but 
it was now permitted for Peter to eat them. So these unclean Gentiles, now it was permitted for Peter to associate with them. Peter says as much in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He says to this group of Gentiles, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, through the vision, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. A couple of verses later, he clarifies Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. So so you keep it up? God has shown Peter that Jews and Gentiles, that in Christ they are both one and the same. They, They are both equal at the foot of the cross. So after journeying to this house and seeing who was inside, Peter began to preach Christ to them. Peter proclaimed, Acts 10.43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And the key word there is everyone. Everyone who believes in Christ. Jew, Gentile, black, white, man, woman, rich, poor, young, old. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for humanity. And there is forgiveness to be had, and it is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is Acts chapter 10. Now, upon hearing this, you realize what happens. These dirty, rotten Gentiles, they receive Christ. And we know that they received Christ because immediately in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit of God falls upon them just as the Spirit of God had fallen upon the Jews back in Acts chapter 2. So here's the point. And here's why Peter should have known better. He was there in Cornelius' living room when God, out of sheer grace, saved a whole bunch of Gentiles. And they were saved not because they became Jewish real quick, not because they went out and got circumcised, not because they abstained from pork, and not because they adopted a bunch of cultural peculiarities. No. They were saved the only way anyone is ever saved, and that is by laying hold of Christ by grace alone through faith alone. That's Acts 10. Fast forward then from Acts chapter 10 and Peter's encounter uh, with God's scandalous grace and those Gentiles. Fast forward all the way now to Galatians chapter 2. Here you've got a church made up of mostly Gentile believers. So let's be very clear here. They are trusting in Christ. They have turned from their sin. They love Christ. They are clinging to Him by faith and faith alone. They confess that Christ is all their righteousness. And yet, all of a sudden, Peter, an apostle, mind you, quickly backpedals. He won't even eat with them. He won't have fellowship with them. At the drop of a hat, these Gentile Christians are now treated by an apostle as second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. 
or worse, they are treated as if they aren't even Christians at all. Can you see then how Peter is undercutting the very gospel in all of this? This is why Paul erupts in verse 14. This is why he says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How is it not in step? How has the well been so poisoned? The answer is this. The implication of Peter's actions is that Christ is not enough. That's the implication. The implication is that all of a sudden, Christ's perfect life does not merit enough righteousness for these Gentiles. It's obvious that his sin-paying death on the cross no longer removes all their sin. It must be that that Christ's wrath-absorbing death does not actually placate the totality of God's wrath. It must be, since these Christians won't fellowship with these Christians, that Christ's triumphant resurrection doesn't necessarily assure their resurrection. You see, what has happened is that instead of the crux of the matter being, have you received Christ? Are you relying on Christ? Are you resting in Christ? Now the crux of the matter is more like this. Have you been circumcised in keeping with the old covenant? Are you keeping and adhering to the kosher laws of Israel? Really, it comes down to, are you Jewish enough? Have you done enough? And so I would ask you, do you smell it? Because the stench of all of this rises up into the very nostrils of God. The implication of Peter's actions was that Gentiles were not fully acceptable before God on account of Christ. Which means, in no uncertain terms, the central issue is no longer Christ. It quickly becomes all about me and all about you. Have you done enough? Have you towed the line? Have you kept all the rules? Have you put up all the numbers? which is why Paul got so hot and bothered. It is either, church, Christ plus nothing equals everything, or it is Christ plus something equals nothing. This is what Paul is really getting at in verses 15 and 16. And the whole thing, it revolves around one of Paul's favorite words in all of Galatians. It's the word justified. You can see it used three times just in verse 16. Yet we know, verse 16, that a person is not, here it is, justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be, here it is again, justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. What does it mean to be justified? 
We should get, begin by noting that this is courtroom language. And as Paul is drawing upon it, he is communicating both to the Galatians and to us a glorious truth of the gospel. Picture the scene, if you can, for a moment. Imagine that you are in court standing trial. And when the judge drops the gavel, a declaration will be made. And there are really only two possible declarations. The judge could drop the gavel and thunder from his bench, guilty. In which case, the bailiff would grab you and haul you off to jail. Another possibility, though, is that the gavel would drop and you would hear these words, not guilty. Or you might hear innocent. Or you might hear acquitted. In which case, then, you would be free to go. Those are the the two possibilities that we tend to think of given our judicial system. But in the biblical drama, there is a third possibility, and this is the one that gets to the heart, not just of Galatians chapter 2, but really the heart of the gospel. The third possibility is this. The judge could drop his gavel and announce from the bench, righteous. And that, church, is the declaration of the gospel in Christ. You see, it's not just that you are not guilty. And it's not even just that you are innocent. Justification is the declaration that you are positively righteous before God's law. That's what justification is. Justification is to be declared right in God's sight. Which, of course, begs the question, well, why are we standing before a judge in the first place? And I recognize it's possible to to push metaphors too far, but bear with me. Why are we standing before the judge? And the uncomfortable truth is simply this. We are standing before the judge because we are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners. As Paul says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, very quickly, Paul is not suggesting that somehow because you have Jewish blood flowing through your veins that you are exempted from being a sinner. That's not the point at all. Uh, The point seems to be that, that the Jews are different than the Gentiles in that the Jews received the covenant and Gentiles didn't. Besides, we know elsewhere from Scripture that the, contist- that the consistent testimony is that each and every one of us are sinners. Psalm 143, verse 2 should ring loud in our ears. The psalmist sings, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So we all stand in need of justification. And we all stand in need because left to ourselves, when the gavel drops, we will hear only one word, and that is the word guilty. So the question to focus on then is this. How can someone be justified? How can you stand right in God's sight? And thankfully, God has not left us in the dark. God's Word answers by telling us 
both where not to look as well as where to look. When it comes where not to look, you and I are warned that we are not to look to the works of the law. Paul says in verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So so what Scripture is saying is this, don't look to your works. Don't look to your deeds, your obedience, or your zeal. Put no confidence in the flesh. Refuse to look at your great Bible reading, your rigorous discipline, and your incessant quiet times. Refrain immediately from trusting in some sinner's prayer, your baptism, or your anything for that matter. And the reason is you will not, I repeat, not find justification before God by your doing. You will not find justification before God by you looking to yourself. The point is, and this is from beginning to end in Scripture, when we're talking about salvation or justification or being declared right in God's sight, when we're talking about redemption or acceptance before God or forgiveness or eternal life or, I don't know, about a million other graces of the gospel, none of them will be found by you and I looking in the mirror. That's not where it's found. Well, then where will it be found? Verse 16 answers, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And this immediately confronts us with the utter scandal of the gospel. You know what the scandal of the gospel is? You will never, no, never be justified by your doing. Only by Christ's doing. You will never be made right in God's sight by who you are or what you do. You will only be made right in God's sight by who Christ is and what He has done for you. Church, justification is not about gazing itself. It's about gazing at the Savior. It's not your works. It's not your obedience. It's not your law-keeping that will ever tip the scales. It is, in fact, Christ's works. Christ's obedience. Christ's law-keeping. And Christ's works and obedience and law-keeping don't just tip the scales. They actually obliterate them. So you must look to Christ. And you must look to Christ not once and not twice, but forever. Because it is Christ and Christ alone. He is the only way to be right in God's sight. He is the only way to be justified. As William Gurnall, the great 17th century Anglican minister, so memorably put it, he said, Faith hath two hands. With one it pulls off its own righteousness and throws it away. And with the other... It puts on Christ's righteousness. What's Gurnall saying? He's saying you and I must strip ourselves of our own pseudo-righteousness. And that instead we must cling to the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. And it is that very righteousness that God gifts to us in the gospel 
of grace. Unless we be misunderstood, and in an effort maybe to turn the screw a bit on those in Galatia, this righteousness by which we stand right in God's sight, it is not yours, it is not mine because we've been circumcised or because we've abstained from pork or because we became Jewish. It's got nothing to do with you or I at all. It is Christ's very righteousness and it is made ours simply by faith and faith alone. This is why, church, the Reformers labored to show that faith is nothing more than empty hands lifted up to God. Because you and I contribute nothing. All we do in the gospel is receive. And what we receive is Christ in all His fullness for us. It's in this vein that we ought not to miss that as I mentioned a moment ago, just as justified is mentioned three times, so also is faith. Verse 16, once more, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, and and you should know that, that that word that the ESB translates as believed there, it comes from the same word group in Greek as the word faith. So we know a person not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed, or we have faith in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because no works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So there is a drum that is being beat, and that is this. Justification in God's sight is only the result of Christ and you and I laying hold of Christ by faith. Period. Full stop. No equivocation. No ands, ifs, or buts. If any sinner is ever to be right in God's sight, it will only be the result of God's grace, whereby sinners look to Christ by faith and receive His righteousness. That's it. And that was true for Paul. It was true for Peter. It was true for the circumcision party. It was true for all those in Galatia. And it is equally true for you and I. Our only source of righteousness is Christ. And the only way that we lay hold of Christ is by faith. So zoom out with me for a quick sec. Zoom out, and as you do, perhaps you can begin to see something of the bigger picture. You can understand, for example, why Paul was so adamant back in Galatians 2-3 that Titus would not be circumcised. I trust that maybe now you can feel something of it in your bones. Why Peter's behavior here this morning was so out of step with the truth of the gospel. Verse 14. It must be said and sung and shouted. There's only one way anyone can be made right in God's sight. And that is through Christ. And any work or deed or act or doing from us, the second we make that thing the prerequisite, we have immediately forfeited the gospel. So this must be forever our song and our banner and our confession and our life. Christ is our rock. 
Christ is our anchor. Christ is our fortress. Christ is our God and our Savior and our King, the one whose very righteousness is ours. And on account, beloved, of His perfect, spotless righteousness that is gifted to you, you and I then can joyfully and reverently and confidently enter the presence of God. Well, this wonderful truth of the gospel is summarized well in those glorious words from Augustus Top Lady's hymn, Rock of Ages. Let, let me encourage you and conclude the sermon this morning by just reading you a few lines. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Church, cling to Christ and Christ alone, for he and he alone is your righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that your Spirit would press these wonderful, encouraging, life-giving truths of the gospel upon our souls this morning. I pray that you would direct all of the affections of our hearts away from ourselves, which is what we are prone to do, and that you would fix our affections upon Christ, and that you would encourage our hearts as we do so. We pray that you would do all of this for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.